Welcome to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. At least three Republican state lawmakers are working on proposals for Utah's upcoming legislative session that could target college diversity offices and hiring efforts. Four Salt Lake City elementary schools will permanently shut down, taking effect at the start of the next academic year. And you can almost eat Salt Lake City's bad air, what hosting the Olympics would do about it. Joining me today are Salt Lake Tribune reporter Courtney Tanner. Courtney, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Education reporter Michael Lee is with us. Michael, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Olympics Enterprise reporter Julie Jaggs with us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, should note that uh, news columnist Robert Gerke, usually with us, has another commitment this morning, so he will not be with us uh, today. Uh, so I want to start with you, uh, Courtney Tanner. Um, the headline, what we know so far about anti-DEI bills uh, for upcoming legislative uh, session. Um, you remind us early in this article, uh, Courtney, that uh, this push uh, did start a bit last session. Um, remind us a little bit what, what happened last session. Yeah, that's right. So at the very end of the session last year, there were two bills that came up um, that kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of sputtered out pretty quickly um, just because they came up so late. Um, and that was kind of the same push that we're seeing now, but was essentially targeting any kind of questions that diversity or that colleges might ask about diversity on applications for staff or faculty as well as the offices around diversity, equity, and inclusion on college campuses. Um, so I'm not, I can't remember whether Governor Cox was on board with this last year. He certainly is this year. Right. He didn't say much last year, at least that I can recall, um, but definitely has has come out of the gate this year in support of these efforts to, as he would call, rein in diversity efforts on college campuses, um, has spoken three times now um, about, you know, different facets of diversity on college campuses, you know, calling required diversity statements for for applications, you know, bordering on evil um, and saying that he thinks there's too much staff and too much spending on on diversity offices. Uh, so in in your story here, you define DEI. Uh, maybe do it for us. We, we're talking talk about it here. We will be talking about it, I'm sure, for the next several months. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. What are colleges and universities saying when they use that term? Yeah, it's a pretty broad term, and, and it really depends on who you ask because it can be defined differently by different people. But generally, these offices, these DEI offices are meant to support students from all different types of backgrounds, particularly underrepresented backgrounds. But they can be about race and ethnicity, but they can also be about, you know, single parents or individuals with disabilities. I mean, it really runs the gamut of, you know, people that might have different disadvantages in higher education and supporting those students to get them to a degree. Uh, so before we get into the legislation that's being proposed, Governor Cox, what what is he? Maybe go into a little more detail. What has he said? What are his problems with uh, with DEI? Yeah, he says that the initiatives around diversity have gotten out of hand, in in his opinion, and he is concerned about how much money is being spent on on diversity efforts, and he's worried about how much staff is being devoted to those offices. Um, those are both things that the Tribune. He's looking into, we don't have the data on it yet. Um, and then he's also particularly kind of railed against what he calls these, quote, diversity statements you have to sign to get hired. Um, and I would point out that 
the Tribune and, and others have found no evidence that there's anything you have to sign to be hired as far as the diversity statement goes, but some colleges do, you know, ask you as part of the application to give a statement on your own personal diversity beliefs and how you might further those at the university. Um, but the governor has said that those are, uh, quote, bordering on evil. Uh, so you... Um, uh... You've detected, you've noticed, uh, I guess, several bills are being uh, filed. Uh, let's talk about this uh, first one. Is it um, uh, Representative uh, John Johnson? Uh, Senator John Sen- Johnson. Senator John Johnson. Uh, he, I think he lives in, uh, what, Ogden area? Yes, North Ogden. Um, he is one of the, the legislators that had a bill last year. And we don't exactly know what his bill is going to look like this year, but we do know he's interested in running a bill. He talked to me a little bit about what that might look like kind of generally. He didn't want to give specifics on it yet. He said he's still kind of drafting it. Um, last year, his bill was pretty hard line to eliminate all of these diversity, equity and inclusion offices, as well as any leadership positions at the public universities in the state. There are eight of them. Um, but at the end of the session, he said that that was too harsh and that he didn't think those offices should be kind of outright eliminated. So it'll be interesting to see kind of what his bill actually does this year. I think it might still look at those offices and potentially maybe him and funding. But um, like I said, he, he didn't really talk about the specifics of that, but he does want to focus on what he calls fairness for everybody. I think it was in response to his bill, was it, that uh, Representative Sandra Hollins, uh, Utah's only black state laymaker, lawmaker, gave an impassioned speech, a fairly famous speech uh, at the last year's session. That's right. It's a, a pretty powerful speech to listen to. I mean, she kind of questions why her coworkers are doing this and talks about how, you know, there's not a lot of folks of color in Utah, which we generally know. Um, you know, the state is historically white, historically LDS. And, and she talks about like, why are you, why are you targeting these efforts that are meant to, to kind of help and to, to look at those, you know, disparities and to, to bolster people up. So Senator Johnson, I guess the last year he says, okay, that Billy was running, uh, feels a little harsh. We don't have, uh, absolute details now of the, of the new bill. Um, I, we should note, um, Senator Johnson works at Utah State University, right? Huntsman School. Uh, he does. He's, yeah. he's a professor emeritus, right? Um, so he talks about uh, he wants fairness for everybody at the, at uh, universities and colleges. What what does that mean? Do you think? Yeah, it's, uh, I would probably leave the exact interpretation up to the senator. But um, what we talked about is that he doesn't support offices that are solely based on on race essentially, um, specific student populations like Latino or Black students, he kind of finds those to be divisive. Um, so an example that he gave is that he's he's heard the statistic that more students of color are first-generation college students than white students, and that is accurate. That's true. But he says that instead of focusing on students of color and excluding you know white students who may also be first-generation college students, he'd rather see an office that's broader and that's just for first-generation college students instead of breaking it down by race. Hmm. I think you also, in, in your story, he says he, you like to see, I guess, efforts uh, for economically disadvantaged, right, rather than a minority, uh, rather than a racial group of families below a poverty line. Right. I think it's kind of another one of these efforts to not divide it by race or ethnicity in, in his eyes and to kind of 
broaden it out again, which is he's calling fairness for all. Um, I think it's worth noting that there are other maybe disadvantages that students of color face that aren't being taken into account with some of those offices that, that some of these DEI administrators are saying, hey, look, you're overlooking the point of these offices. You know, you're not you're not getting what we do. Um, so there are two sides of this. Uh, Senator Johnson, uh, he, he's quoting your story as saying that uh, around $11 million is spent on DEI programs at Utah College and Universities. Uh, he says, I'm paraphrasing here, we, we need bang for our buck. The governor's talked about this, too. So I don't know either. The governor or Senator Johnson, have they given specifics of what kind of outcomes they want to see? You know, they haven't. And I, I tried to follow up with the governor this week specifically on that. Um, and he declined to comment. And so, you know, we don't really know what kind of outcomes they actually want to see. You know, they're saying these DEI programs, you know, aren't yielding these notable results that we want. But when you ask, you know, what are the notable res results that you do want, that there aren't examples being given yet. So again, the Tribune's kind of looking into that and seeing like, what do these DEI offices do? You know, how do they track their success? Which, you know, can be through a number of metrics. But um, so far, the state leaders that are attacking this are not giving examples. Uh, Senator Johnson uh, is, says he believes that uh, Utah's colleges and universities are, I guess, the climate, the atmosphere is biased against conservatives who, are, who attend or work there. Yeah, that's... Um, Definitely a part of what he's talking about. He thinks there needs to be more what he calls viewpoint diversity. Um, so that would be more like, you know, on the political ideological spectrum, um, kind of embracing both the right and the left at colleges. He's, you know, he started in Mississippi as a professor, took a break and then came back and started working at Utah State. And he said, you know, in that gap, in that time when he came back, it was a lot harder for him as a conservative to work within the system. And he also points to, you know, some clashes between student groups at the U. You know, there was um, a group that bills itself as a socialist group, Mecha, um, that protested an event put on by a conservative group and, you know, kind of shouted them down and then faced consequences for that. And I think the Senator Johnson kind of sees that as an example of conservative groups being silenced. And so I think that he kind of has this position that we need more, I guess, more of an embrace of of all political perspectives and, and platforms and that colleges should kind of be a place where all ideas can be debated. Another legislator you mentioned, Representative Katie Hall, Republican from South Ogden, uh, apparently around a DEI bill last session. Uh, is she going to revive that this session? She is. And actually the language came out last night. So breaking news. All right. <laughs> yeah. She has drafted a bill that's, Similar to what she had last year, um, maybe goes a little bit further, but essentially says that colleges can't ask about inclusion and diversity on applications, um, can't do kind of specific training around that, and uh, can't have employees that that are hired with the sole purpose of of kind of doing that kind of background check or or interview questions during an application. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> then you mentioned Representative Tim Jimenez, Republican from Tooele. What uh, what is he likely to run? 
Yeah, Representative Jimenez's bill is, uh, again, kind of still in the works, he said, but his idea is not just limited to public universities, but would essentially look at both public and private employers and ban them from having any kind of like box that you would check in an application that would say like, I agree to uphold certain beliefs about diversity and inclusion as part of this company. Um, he said that he's heard from folks that have been required to do that or like sign a paper saying they agree to, you know, a company's beliefs on diversity and he doesn't want that to happen. He essentially wants to like prohibit that practice. Uh, I think last year he was, uh, I'm not sure where this ended up, but he he talked about critical race theory, right? He was, he was trying to ban discussion of that in K through 12. So yeah, there was the effort earlier to ban critical race theory in K through 12 schools. And then last year he did kind of a follow-up bill to that, that essentially is about individual freedom is, is how he captures it within education. Um, so it's kind of critical race theory, but it essentially would prohibit, you know, teachers from telling students that they're responsible for past racism or discrimination. Um, I'd like to point out that there's no evidence that that was being taught or that critical race theory was being taught. Critical race theory is a college level framework. Um, and the state has even done an audit that that says that that wasn't being taught in, in K through 12 schools, but it is formally banned from discussion. Mm. I'm sure you'll be following these uh, bills and there, there might be others that uh, pop up during the uh, session, which of course begins on Tuesday. I want to uh, just uh, spend a couple of minutes on another story from uh, a few days ago, uh, Courtney. Uh, this uh, 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 looked at University of Utah. The headline here, University of Utah discontinues diversity questions or statements. Uh, what is the University of Utah doing here? The University of Utah, the Office of the President, so President Taylor Randall, put out an announcement in an email to anyone that's kind of responsible for hiring at the university. So it's like deans, department chairs, any really senior leadership positions to essentially not ask any questions about diversity or inclusion within an application process, within someone you know being hired at the university. There were examples of the university that the university has provided that you know were kind of open-ended questions that they had on applications before. Like I mentioned, you know, describe your stance on diversity, um, and they will no longer be doing that. They are specifically now saying not to do any of those questions, whether written on paper or, or spoken out loud in the process. Uh, okay, yeah. So um, even if they don't require a, a statement, they're, I guess there was that option that, that they're going to eliminate any anything uh, close to that, I guess. Right. So again, I would say that, that the university and all public universities in the state have said, you know, they don't have these statements that the governor was describing, that they kind of force anybody to sign to uphold certain beliefs. But, you know, universities have said, you know, as part of the hiring process, we do kind of ask applicants about their take on diversity and what they've done to kind of advance that. And so now those questions will no longer be asked at the University of Utah. Mm. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing much more about this, uh, this issue. Uh, thanks for uh, telling this, uh, us about this, uh, Courtney Tanner. Appreciate it. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's going to be one to watch this session. It, it will. It will. I'm sure you'll be uh, um, following this closely for the Tribune, and uh, we'll be following your reports closely. Uh, Courtney Tanner, reporter with the Salt Lake Tribune. We're going to take a break, and uh, when we uh, come back, we'll be talking about uh, something that's upset uh, quite a few parents, uh, families for Salt Lake City Elementary Schools. 
It's been announced recently will close. We'll be talking with education reporter Michael Lee. You're listening to Behind the Headlines. Uh, more following this. Thanks for listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We turn next to education reporter for the Salt Lake Tribune, Michael Lee. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks again for having me. So the headline here, it's official. Four Salt Lake City elementary schools uh, will close. They'll be permanently shuttered. Uh, When is this happening? Yeah, so they will be closed uh, at the beginning of the next academic year. So that's 2024-25. And uh, which schools are we talking about? Yeah, so the schools that they officially voted to uh, close are Benyon, Hawthorne, Mary W. Jackson, and Riley. A couple of these on the east side, a couple on the west side, I guess. Yep. Um, so this is a part of an uh, ongoing process. How long has this uh, been going on? Yeah, so from my understanding, this is th- at least this discussion, right, of of population and boundary study and, you know, um, whether or not, you know, the district should close schools has actually kind of spanned for uh, a couple of years now. Um, I think this specific process um, sort of officially started in February last year when uh, the school board officially voted to study all 27 of its elementary schools, kind of just to talk to the you know principals, school community council chairs, and um, you know do this again, kind of a, a first boundary and population study. Um, and so that that went on for a bit uh, into the summer. Um, and then the uh, district kind of narrowed that list of 27 schools down to seven. So it's those four that we just talked about, along with uh, Emerson, um, Newman, and Wasatch Elementaries. Um, and so that is also kind of when, you know, a lot of we started hearing from a lot of parents about, you know, what is this process? You know, we're really confused about this process. And, um, you know, like you kind of mentioned earlier, a lot of parents have been upset and um, that continued till Tuesday. And I'm sure currently as well, now that the schools um, have been officially announced to be closed, the, the four again that we mentioned earlier. So, um, so yeah, it's it's been it's been a process that's been going on for a while, for sure. Pretty emotional. You you report that there was at least one boo after the vote. Uh, there's a there's a photo in the Tribune uh, as a parent or somebody obviously emotional. Uh, parents are expressing upset. I'll get into that a little bit later. I, I was very interested to uh, to learn your story, Michael. That um, one of the uh, I got one of the pushes here was an audit that happened. I'm not sure when this happened. Yeah, that was uh, in December of 2022, um, and actually, um, you know, that was something that. Um, had had been brought up a lot at these meetings, actually, and um, essentially it was an audit from state le- uh, state auditors that um, essentially they they told the district that hey, you know, you're spending a lot of taxpayer dollars on keeping a lot of these schools open, um, especially with declining enrollment, and and you know there just aren't a lot enough students in these schools essentially, uh, and so that's kind of that was kind of um, you know the district obviously has told us that. You know, this is a discussion they've been having even before the audit, um, you know, and and so um, but a lot of what they have said uh, throughout this process of why they need to close schools is, you know, related somewhat related to that. Right. Where it's, you know, we want to, um, you know, in their words, right size schools. So that's three, uh, te- three teachers per grade in each building. Um, 
and uh, tw around 25 students per class. Um, and I, I know that definition is a little loose as well, but um, you know, that's kind of their, that was kind of their general idea of, you know, wh wh why they wanted to um, uh, close some schools, I guess, and why they felt there was a need to close some schools. Um, yeah. So the superintendent, uh, I was interested here, to, obviously declining enrollment, right? Mm -hmm. But then she said to have more schools than we need is not good for student learning, not good for teacher collaboration. A couple of things she mentioned. Yeah. Um, you know, at, a, at a, a couple of the meetings, you know, they've mentioned that since I think uh, in the past eight years, the district has lost around 4,000 K through six students specifically. So those are elementary age students. Um, and, you know, I, uh, one of the things that, again, the district themselves have kind of uh, talked about has been, you know, if we are able to um, get more students in the buildings, um, you know, we are able to pr provide more resources and opportunities for more students uh, instead of, um, in, in somewhat in their words, spreading those resources thin across a lot of schools that have low enrollment numbers. And so um, I think one of the things that stood out to me at one of the meetings was uh, they were talking about, uh, one of the uh, district officials was talking about how there are certain locations in Utah um, that, you know, require a certain number of students in a class for field trips. And so, you know, if, if your class has like 14 or 15 students, say, for example, you know, you might not meet that threshold for a certain field trip location, um, you know, and so just like stuff like that and um, Title I funding as well, um, it, that, that's kind of their their reasoning of, you know, what you mentioned, which is, you know, giving students a better way to learn, right? And it's for student learning as well. What happens to uh, the, these uh, kids? I assume they'll be assigned to a different uh, school. Yeah, so the, the the students who go to the uh, four now close, I uh, guess now uh, uh, approved closures. Uh, sorry, that wording wasn't necessarily the best, but um, for those students who go to those four schools, yeah, they will be reassigned to uh, nearby elementary schools, which was one of their, um, which the district has said is was one of their kind of criteria of whether or not they should close the school, which is you know how how close they are to other schools um in the district so yeah um so for example you know i can't necessarily it would take me a while to necessarily name all of them but for example you know benyon students are going to be reassigned to emerson liberty uinta and wasatch elementaries and you know hawthorne students will also be sent to emerson and also like whittier as well so you know they they, they will be um reassigned and also 14 other elementary schools in the district will have their boundaries redrawn as well one parent, uh, quoting your story, says it's going to be, uh, I don't know if they use the word traumatic, it's going to be hard for their, their kids because they won't necessarily be with their friends that they've had for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, you know, that that was a big concern. I think we we heard from not just parents, but, you know, they, they held these uh, inf special information meetings about school closures specifically um, throughout this academic year. And, you know, a lot of students had come up and, and, and spoken in the mic as well and were saying, you know, I don't want to be away from my my classmates. I don't want to I like my teachers right now at my school. Like, I don't want the school to close and, you know, my teacher potentially having to be somewhere else. I mean, the district has said that that, that teachers will Will be able to keep their jobs, um, and you know they will. They're they're going to be trying to you know set um, get them to work at schools as well that you know their students may have um, transferred to or uh, been reassigned to. 
Um, and, and yeah, that's like, that has been the biggest thing. And I think one of the things I heard Tuesday night as well, um, was also just this, you know, how, how am I going to tell my student? How am I going to tell my child as what a, a couple of parents had told me, because, you know, like I mentioned in the story that a lot of parents throughout this whole process has kind of been, have kind of been confused or, you know, frustrated with the lack of transparency from the district uh, about, you know, why certain schools were chosen, um, you know, the the hard data behind why some schools were chosen, you know, a lot have felt that, you know, it's it was sort of a subjective process. Um, and again, they, they just don't have any, they, they personally feel like they don't have any good reason to explain to their child why they will have to move their school next year. And understand a parent can apply to uh, send their child uh, to uh, a school in whose boundary they are not, right? You can, but uh, but I guess it's that's not guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. This state is, uh, I mean, the entire state of Utah is an open enrollment state, and um, technically, that first the the open enrollment period um, it has ended. But um, from uh, from from my understanding or from my recollection, um, but the district will be opening a new special uh, special open enrollment period for for those parents and students who um, have. Uh, you know, who are going to be affected by these closures. And that's going to run from February 5th to the 18th, if I remember correct. Um, and yeah, so you can apply, but um, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not entirely like familiar with every single step of the open enrollment applications, but um, you know, again, from my understanding, yeah, it is not a guarantee um, depending on, you know, the, the capacity of the school, you know, um, and, and, and some stuff like that as well. Uh, you quote a parent, uh, Malika Filz. Uh, I'm going to quote this. Uh, she says, we've been through COVID already. They've already, uh, they've had uh, a very challenging elementary school experience up to this point already. So to add this on top of it is just going to be real hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and again, that's kind of one of those things we heard a lot throughout this process, uh, which is, you know, especially around the elementary age, a lot of these parents have felt like, you know, yeah, it's it's really hard for their child to, uh, make friends, right? And and especially during the COVID nineteen pandemic, which uh, again, I I have I wasn't in Utah, I wasn't reporting in Utah then, but uh, from what I've just heard from them, you know, to going to class online and it's really hard to make friends when you know you're just staring at a computer screen. So, um, you know, coming back to school, it's it's kind of that for them. It was you know my child is, um, you know learning how to make friends, right? Especially at that young elementary age. And so um, I think that has that plus, you know, now a lot of students have the possibility of being split up, right? Because a lot of these schools, um, well, the, these schools that are being closed, um, you know, the students are being redrawn to multiple schools, not just one school, right? Um, and so that has kind of, you know, again, been a frustration of parents of, you know, of, I think, um, either uh you know there there was someone who mentioned at the meeting right if um you know yeah like like me had mentioned like the COVID-19 pandemic has already has already done a lot to the students so um that they felt that the board should hold off on the vote or at least vo or vote no or, or at least table the vote um and and kind of you know redo the process as as a whole uh the vote was close four to three uh, from the school board, what what are, what are school board members saying on both on either side? Yeah, I think you know, 
yeah, the, the vote was very close. It was, it was very split. Um, um, like you mentioned quite literally by a vote. Um, I think one of the reasons why, um, some of the board members, um, uh, voted no, right. Uh, Bryce Williams, who represents, uh, precinct one, for example, you know, he, he kind of talked about how they have heard that, um, from the community throughout this whole process, right. That they didn't feel like there was transparency in the process. Um, and, you know, that was one of the things he had, uh, you know, one of the reasons, uh, he had, I, um, he mentioned he didn't feel comfortable voting yes. Right. Which was, that you know, he felt that trans in, in his words, transparency must be present when decisions that impact the future of our children are being made. Um, and so, yeah, I, th I think that's kind of one of the reasons um, that the school board, some of the a few of the school board members, just didn't feel comfortable um, with making that decision to close the schools on Tuesday. Well, this will be uh, a big change for a lot of families, and this is happening, as you say, I guess uh, in the in the fall. Um, education reporter. Uh, uh, Michael Lee. Uh, I want to talk about another uh, of your stories, Michael. Um, the headline is, Woman Hired to Investigate Racial Harassment Within Davis School District Files a Lawsuit Accusing the District of Discriminating Against Her. Uh, give us a little bit of background. Why um, uh, uh, there's previous uh, problems with the Davis School District, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, definitely want to give a shout out to uh, Courtney, actually, who uh, had done a lot of this reporting um, before before this story was published. Um, yeah, uh, just, just some quick background, you know, um, the Davis School District had been under investigation by the Department of Justice and, um, you know, they the the uh, DOJ had um, essentially, among other things, you know, found, for example, that um, a lot of um, you know, black and Asian students, they had the district had ignored a lot of the bullying and harassment uh, amongst a lot of black and Asian students, as well as, um, you know, disciplining a lot of black students, you know, more severely than maybe some of their uh, other other classmates, other, you know, non black classmates as well. And so that was kind of there, there were, you know, there were settlements and there were kind of this, there's kind of this agreement between the DOJ and the district, right, which included, you know, uh, for this story specifically, right, which included the creation of um, what is called what was called the Office of Equal Opportunity. Um, and so, you know, this employee, Jocelyn Thomas, uh, I guess former employee at this at this current time, but, um, you know, she was hired by the district last year, uh, um, two years ago, actually, sorry. Um, you know, New Year's and everything, but uh, this two years, she was hired by the district two years ago and um, it, for, you know, to be a, I guess, quote, district coordinator, um, which is kind of a management position in, in this role, um, in this uh, office, um, you know, for this specific office, for, for the, yeah, for the office. Yeah. What is she alleging in this uh, lawsuit? What did she say happened? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, um, there were there were two things, um, you know, one was the violation of the Equal Opportunity Clause and um, and the other was kind of just that she was treated differently than her fellow district coordinators. Um, you know, there were a, a couple of things that, you know, stood out in this um, in the lawsuit. And I think one of the things was that you, the w one thing we saw we uh, I read early in, in the lawsuit was kind of just um, this. 
I guess, a difference in treatment, right, from not just her colleagues, but also she felt like she didn't get, um, you know, the same training, the same DEI or Title IX training as uh, her colleagues, as well as, you know, there's a specific example where uh, it was during a uh, administrative training within the office where one of her um, colleagues who is was like, I guess, same the same position title had, again, allegedly um, given her a handful of garbage, right, and, and told her to clean up the trash. And, you know, when when she kind of refused to do that, because she told her colleague that wasn't her job. Uh, allegedly, her you know it, her her colleague got mad and and I guess furious, which is the wording in the complaint. Um, so there were a lot of things like that, as well as um, you know there was a third party consultant that was hired by the district as well um, to monitor harassment policies, procedures, employ employ employee trainings, um, monitoring the district uh, district's progress uh, in this office as well who had, you know, uh, again, allegedly overridden a lot of what um, Thomas had um, reported, uh, viol uh, violations and whatnot. And, you know, for example, there was a, a situation where um, a, a teacher had called a student a monkey because they had responded, um, you know, they had raised their hand in class, you know, saying like, ooh, ooh, like I know the answer to to response to a class question, right? And the, the teacher had said, you know, I don't call them monkeys. And, you know, uh, the Thomas had, you know, reported that that was a violation, right? Because, um, you know, teachers can't call students, uh, you know, students, specifically black students, monkeys, right? And, you know, I think, um, that report was changed allegedly again, um, saying that, you know, that student had made monkey like noises, right. Which is why the teacher had said that. So it, there's a lot in that lawsuit. And, and so those are kind of just some of the biggest things that I would say stood out in it. Yeah. Mm. One of the officials, uh, apparently in the lawsuit that Jocelyn Thomas is alleging, uh, it seems to be some resentment that, uh, Dr. Thomas was even there or that's even being investigated that, uh, this official, uh, uh, as part of this, my characterization, this official seemed to believe that, you know, Davis County doesn't have, or Davis uh, School District doesn't have a problem. Yeah, no, I, uh, again, that that's kind of the wording, at least according to the complaint, um, you know, and, and that's, that's, um, yeah, that that's, that's just what, again, a um, what the complaint says, and you know, uh, we did reach out to um, that that employee or that third party consultant, and you know, they kind of just referred us to the district statement. Which, mm -hmm. um, yeah, what, what is the district saying, if anything? Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things, and and I think we we see this a lot just in general when when lawsuits come up, but you know, they didn't they didn't comment directly on the lawsuit just due to um, you know quote potential litigation and um I, I think you know they they what they had sent us and, and other news media essentially um that they you know that their their teachers and administration and staff you know stand stand against any form of harassment and dis or discrimination and you know linked us their you know their policy for harassment and discrimination and also mentioned to us that there was a letter sent to the sent to parents and students and and other faculty and staff at the beginning of the school year um, kind of, you know, talking about that as well. Well, uh, thank you, Michael Lee, education reporter, uh, telling us about this. Uh, by the way, uh, Courtney Tanner, anything you'd like to say about the background here since you did some previous reporting? I think Michael captured it perfectly and just kudos to him for, for jumping in on this and covering the latest lawsuit. I think that this is a story that is unfortunately going to keep unraveling and we're going to 
continue to see more. All right. Thank you, Courtney. And thank you, Michael. Um, You're listening to Behind the Headlines. We're going to head toward a uh, break here. When we come back, we'll be talking with Olympics reporter uh, Julie Jag, uh, talking about uh, air quality, air pollution, and how having the Olympics uh, coming up in the 2030s might help with that. Uh, We'll have more following this break. You're listening to Behind the Headlines, the weekly news roundup from Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm Tom Williams. We now bring in Salt Lake Tribune Olympics and Enterprise reporter Julie Jag. Julie, thanks for joining us. Great great to be here. Uh, so the headline here, you can almost eat Salt Lake City's bad air. What hosting the Olympics um, would do about it? So what we're talking about is, what, 2034? It, it's, uh, I guess it's all but certain Salt Lake will get the Olympics. Right. The organizers would tell you, you know, that and I guess the legislators will tell you that uh, it is not certain yet, but it Salt Lake is basically the only uh, site in the running now for the 2034 Winter Olympics. The IOC in December selected it as its preferred candidate and Salt Lake already has most of its um, most of its contracts signed, most of its information ready for the IOC. So it would it would be pretty unusual if it was not selected in um, ahead of the Paris Games this year. So with the Olympics, the attention of the world is focused on that particular city, in this case, Salt Lake City. Um, and you start your story with a, a reminiscence from uh, the, the, the organizer, Fraser Bullock. Uh, tell us a bit about that. 2002, <laughs> day before the opening ceremonies, we've got an inversion. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's it's funny because uh, Fraser Bullock, the the one who's heading the the push to bring the Olympics back, um, had you know spoken about this in last year, and it just stuck with me. And so it was it was great to be able to bring it back. Um, but yeah, he was just telling the story of of how they had worried, you know, fretted that when all the attention and all the eyes were going to be turned on Salt Lake City, that everyone would just see this big brown cloud um, that we know as inversion. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but uh, basically storm came in that day and uh, in time for the opening ceremonies cleared out all the all the brown. And so we got not only fresh snow, but uh, clear air. So he says we just got lucky this time, uh, last time, rather. Uh, we have to do something about it for next time. Uh, is he giving any suggestions what we ought to do? He's not. No, um, he has um, said that the the Olympic, the local Olympic organizing committee, when they become that anyway, will just be cheerleaders, basically, that they they want to, um, you know, facilitate and hopefully kind of set a deadline both for uh, federal lawmakers as well as local lawmakers to kind of have like that as a goal to clear the air and make better air by 2034. Uh, they will need more and better public transportation. That's one of the things I think that they promised and that will need to come out of that. So that's kind of part of, part and parcel, I guess, of, of the movement. But they haven't really, other than that, said anything specific as to what they'd like to see done. Governor Cox has some measures in his budget, proposed budget, which uh, I guess could, could help. Yeah, he has a few. Um, at about... 47 million earmarked for clear air, um, clear air initiatives. One of those does have to do with public transportation and I think getting more people to use it, some kind of 
incentives or something to to drive more people toward using public transportation. Uh, another one is kind of this clean air czar that can kind of look out for um, recommend things to be done, look out for areas where where there might be some quick fixes, but uh, there's not a lot, I would say, in the budget for clean air this time around. One thing jumped out at me, I, I don't know, you know, <laughs> how much this would do, but uh, Governor Cox is proposing a air quality czar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's basically just, you know, like I said, someone that would would kind of keep an eye out, kind of give recommendations to things that could be done with an eye toward the future. I think I'm not exactly sure what what that what that person would do. So you talked with uh, Senator Todd Weiler. Um, he's a Republican and he's co-chair of the Clean Air Caucus at the legislature. Uh, he doesn't sound uh, incredibly hopeful that there's going to be much on air quality come out of this session. No, he did not. And that was a surprise. This is one of those things where as a journalist, you go in with a hypothesis and then it gets proven wrong. Uh, I assumed that people would just be jumping at the chance to say, hey, yeah, this is our chance. We've got just 10 years, which is, you know, as one of my sources said, just like a blink of an eye to to get our air clean before the Olympics come. And instead, I got met with, uh, no, there's not really much we're, we're going to do this year. Um, I think they he said that there's things that they would like to do, but just this year, uh, the planning wasn't there, he said. And uh, also just there's time and there's a tight budget and he doesn't think that too many things are going to get passed when it comes to clean air. There's something he said that really jumped out at me. Um, Senator Weiler said, I believe this was him in your story. He says, even if the Utah legislature did nothing between now and 2034, our air will be cleaner in 2034 than it was in 2002. Uh, right, is is yeah. that true? Yeah, yeah. And that was surprising to me as well. Um, and that's just a lot of that has to do with uh, clean air initiatives um, implemented by the federal government, actually. So the Clean Air Act and some of these uh, incentives for automakers to switch to electric cars or to hybrid cars. But uh, I mean that, yeah, so that will be true. The the scientists and the, the um, you know, air advocates that I spoke to agree with that. But then again, I mean, we can also look at the air and say there's days where, you know, it says it's not safe to go outside. So even though it's cleaner, I wouldn't call it clean. You went back into history in your story. It's interesting. Uh, you say 100 years ago and burning coal and wood was the primary source of heat. Air quality could be determined by how much soot floated down from the sky. <laughs> thousand tons of soot per square mile over the course of a winter. Uh, so I guess we're doing better now than, than then. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like, I mean, there are days where we say it's not safe to go outside. I can't imagine what it was like back then or that you could set a jar outside your door and that there would be soot from fireplaces and, um, you know, stoves uh, and trains and whatnot, you know, polluting the air. So so we have come a way, long way since then, but I did think that was pretty fascinating. So it sounds like um, even having the Olympics coming, I guess, may or may not uh, apply pressure to, to accelerate progress in air quality. Yeah, I, I think it will eventually. Um, Senator Weiler suggested that maybe next year, um, once, you know, by next year's session, they'll know for sure that Utah is an Olympic uh, site. 
So he said, you know, maybe that'll add some pressure. I honestly think that they're probably waiting to see also what kind of, um, you know, federal funds they can they can use to make some of these projects happen. Um, but yeah, it doesn't sound like like it's a top priority from what I've heard. So overall on climate, the Olympic organization, the International Olympic Committee, does have some requirements, right? Including uh, you're supposed to put on a climate positive Olympics. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's the biggest one, I guess, is the is the climate positive. And that's only during the three weeks, basically, of the games that they have to be climate positive. And climate positive means just basically that um, that you take more carbon out of the air than you're putting back into the air. Um, so so that is one of the expectations. Um, I actually thought that the IOC had tighter regulations, but it doesn't look like it at one point. I know when the when London posted, they were they'd started slipping in their um, in their uh, air promises and uh, they were almost fined several uh, hundred thousand dollars to by the IOC for for not making their goals. But they did make it. Um, the Olympic organizers here have said that there's no no language like that in their contracts. In your story, you remind us that uh, Beijing uh, famously has a, a very bad air pollution problem. Um, they took drastic measures to try to improve the air ahead of the, uh, the Olympics, I guess, 2008 and 2022. Right. And I think, I mean, everybody, everyone I talked to pointed to that, right, that they, we cannot be Beijing and we don't want to be Beijing as far as the measures that they had to do to clean up their air. Um, a lot of that some of that was moving factories, some of that was just shutting down factories, and then um, famously, you know, telling people, their people that if you have a drive, uh, license plate that ends in an even number, you can only drive these days of the week, odd numbers only these days of the week. Um, I don't think that that would go over too well here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have a, a, maybe about a minute, a minute and a half um before we go to underplayed stories of the week, uh, Julie Jag, uh, tell us, give us your give us your minute version of uh, your recent story on the Zion National Park. Fees are going to go up for one thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the that's one of the big takeaways. Fees are going to go up, although honestly, if you look at inflation and whatnot, then it's not it's not crazy compared to how much prices have gone up everywhere. But fees will be going up for about fifteen to twenty dollars um, for camping sites. And then a little bit, I think, as well for permits. And then what I feel like is the bigger change is that Zion was running its own reservation system for a lot of its backcountry permits, including uh, to walk from top down in the Narrows and in the subway. And now that will have to go through rec.gov, which has basically become the go-to third-party site of the national parks to reserve anything. That's been a little controversial, right, Uh, rec.gov? I guess some, yeah. some people are are not liking that change. Right. Yes. Um, just it, uh, it is run by Booz, um, Booz Allen Hamilton, which uh, is a government contractor um, that deals a lot in a military contractor that deals a lot in intelligence. And they are collecting some non-refundable fees. And it's unclear how much of that actually goes back to the parks and how much they're just collecting. And some people think that... Uh, that it should be more clear, first of all, and that most of those funds should go back to the park um, and that people are in the pressure that they go back to the park when they may just be going straight to um, Booz Allen. Hmm. 
Olympics and Enterprise reporter Julie Jag. Thanks for telling us about those two stories. Thanks for having me. Well, it is time now for the Underplayed Stories of the Week, and we'll start with Courtney Tanner. What's your Underplayed Story of the Week? I'd love to highlight a great story from Blake. Um, He wrote about the code blue measures for um, having homeless individuals come into emergency shelters that's set at 15 degrees outside, and a lot of advocates say that that's way too cold for those shelters to be opening, that people are losing fingers and feet um, due to frostbite. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, you can find that at sltreb.com. Uh, Michael Lee, what's your underplayed story of the week? Yeah, so uh, actually my underplayed story this week is a more of a food story um, by our colleague uh, Palak. And uh, it's actually about this new coffee shop that opened up um, down near 9th and 9th. And um, it's about a couple who met uh, at a Boston coffee shop. And, you know, I'm, I'm a very big cafe person and uh, especially big uh, on, you know, uh, Asian American Pacific Islander owned businesses as well. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the coffee shop's called Loki Coffee. So, All right. Uh, SLTrib.com for that one as well. Julie Jag, what's your underplayed story of the week? Yeah, I wanted to highlight, I don't know if it's underplayed yet because it just came out today, but um, Kevin Reynolds' story about the soon-to-be BYU football player, I'm going to try not to slaughter his name, Ephraim Asiata, uh, who was um, in a, uh, a shooting when he was in high school, when he was a teenager, uh, that killed two of his friends. And he was, looks like 1% given a 1% chance of survival because he had also been hit by some bullets, um, but fought his way back and now is going to play for the Cougars. So it's a very moving story. All right. Wonderful. Um, I think I'll mention um, a story by Sophia Jeremias. Uh, it's a problem on the Navajo Nation. Um, exact addresses uh, can be a problem, especially in an emergency situation. There's new technology that's uh, going to help with this. The Rural Utah Project is uh, going to provide more than 3,000 homes with, uh, with addresses. You can find that at sltrib.com as well. Well, we've been talking with some great reporters from the uh, Salt Lake uh, Tribune. We've been talking uh, with reporter uh, Courtney uh, Tanner, education reporter Michael Lee, and Olympics and Enterprise reporter Julie Jag. Thanks to all of you, and uh, thanks everyone for listening to Behind the Headlines today. I hope you'll join us next week, same time. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>